Welcome to Luxuries for Your Soul with Alexis Kletchian and Lauren Gold. Every episode is a look at life through the lens of luxury. Whether it's the dismantling of belief systems, pursuing our passions, or standing in our truth, we approach each conversation with genuine curiosity of what it means to have a well-lived life. Today's episode is about personal journeys and the lessons we learn along the way. Most importantly, self-love and self-acceptance. Author Rennie Dieball shares the story behind her body positivity children's book, B is for Bellies, and shares details about her writing process and how ideas are sparked, whether she is collaborating with other writers, ghostwriting for celebrities, or dancing in the cereal aisles at grocery stores. She also takes us on a journey through the offices of People Magazine, where she spent many years as a journalist, which ultimately became the perfect training ground to make every word in every story count. Little did she know, this skill would beautifully unfold in the colorful pages of picture books. We also discuss what makes a good collaboration and how listening leads to magical storytelling. B is for Bellies might have been written for children, but the message is for all ages. Love yourself exactly as you are. This is the book we wish we had read to us, and now you can read it to the ones you love. If you are a writer looking to collaborate, listen to her wise advice. And if you are like us and now want to read everything she's working on, she gives us sneak peeks of upcoming projects. And when we stopped the recording, there was another book we definitely will have to have her back on to discuss in the future. Before we begin this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Besides a review, it's the best way to help us make an impact through growing our listenership and attracting new guests so you can continue receiving all the luxuries for your soul. Grab a coffee or tea and settle in for a great conversation with the author, mom, wife, and friend, Rennie Dieball. Do you believe that everybody has a book in them? Oh, good question. I do. And I think that some people could use help from a professional to get that book out and others don't need that. But as far as content goes, yes, there's no shame in asking for help from a professional writer in order to get your book out. I think it's like any other Mm -hmm. professional that you employ for help in doing something that you don't do for a living. That's part of what I do for my career is I help authors get the book that's in their head out onto the page. So to answer your question, yes, absolutely. We all have a book in us. Some of us have the tools and the practice and the experience to get the book out. Others don't. No shame in that. Yeah. And so what topics inspire you to put, you know, pen to page? What moves you to say this This is a story I want to see unfold, either in black and white or, you know, as your first picture book. Yeah, I think it could be anything. I read somewhere that whatever it is that you can't stop thinking about is what you should be Mm -hmm. writing about. So I think all the books that I've written that are my own, not the co-authored ones, have come from that. It's whatever whatever that topic might be that I simply cannot stop thinking about. And it can take different forms, whether it's a children's book, a picture book, a middle grade novel, something for adults. So when I can't stop thinking about it, I like to write something down and for it takes shape later, what form it's going to end up in. 
What specifically for B is for bellies? What was the topic specifically that you couldn't stop thinking about? Sure. So I always say that B is for bellies was born in the cereal aisle at the grocery store. And I'll tell you that story shortly. But more of the backstory to that is that I was laid up with a riding accident several years ago. So I had a lot of time on my hands, a lot of time to read. And throughout my 20s and 30s, I suffered from disordered eating like many of us do who grew up in the 80s and 90s, grew up steeped in diet culture. So Mm -hmm. while I was laid up, I read this book called The Effort Diet. And then I read a book called Health Mm. at Every Size. And both of those books really opened my mind to what I was doing to my body by constantly just being on a diet and why they don't work. And more than that, why people, particularly women, but it's this is a genderless issue, why we feel the need to constantly make ourselves smaller and why we can't honor our mm-hmm. natural you know, hunger signals. So those two books became four books that I read because I had all this time to myself. And so that was something that I couldn't stop thinking about, how for so many years, it was part of my identity to be as small as possible, as thin as possible. I craved those compliments. And so I had this downtime to read those books. And then when I had kids, I have two daughters. It was super important to me not to pass along my body image stuff to them. So from the time they were babies, I always made a point of talking about who they are, not what they look like. You know, people love to compliment babies and little kids. She's so beautiful. She's so cute. And I would make a point even Mm. before they could talk Mm. of saying, Mm -hmm. yes, she is. And you know what else? She's really smart. She's really strong. So all of that was really swirling when I took my then seven-year-old to the grocery store one day and we were on the cereal aisle. And as you get older, you might find that the music that they play in grocery stores gets better and better. So this was one of those days where there was a great song on in the grocery (laughs) store. I was like kind of dancing with the shopping cart, you know? And my daughter looked at me with, with these big eyes and she goes, mommy. And I thought, oh, this is so funny. I'm embarrassing her for the first time. She's seven. It hadn't happened yet. (laughs) Rite of passage. But it turned out to be something much bigger because with those big eyes and that horrified look, she goes, mommy, something is jiggling. And now my knee-jerk reaction was to feel ashamed (laughs) that something on my body was jiggling, that Mm -hmm. my kid noticed, you know? But because this was Mm -hmm. so on my mind and so important to me, I took a beat And then I said to her, well, what's wrong with that? And she kind of clammed up Mm. and like, didn't really want to go there. And I just said, you know, everybody has fat on it. Some people have more fat than others. Some people have fat in different places and there's nothing wrong with jiggling. And, you know, then she wanted to pick out her cereal. We sort of moved on. I didn't want to hammer it in too hard, but I wrote, I went home and I wrote down J is for jiggle. And I wrote the little poem that appears in the book that starts with J is for jiggle. And I was like, maybe this is it. Maybe we start the conversation about body image and body acceptance and loving yourself exactly as you are. Maybe we start that too late. Maybe we start that by the time kids are having issues. Why don't we start sooner? Why don't we start at picture book age? So I called my literary agent and I read her J is for jiggle. The page is J is for jiggle. Bodies bounce when they move. When your dancing parts wiggle, get into the groove. And I read her that and she said get off the phone with me and go write the other 25. You really have something here. I mean, this was way back in 
2019 picture books take a long, long time. So I wrote the other 25 and that's how it was born. Can you share K? Uh, yeah, K is for okay. kindness and you can read the rest. <laughs> Up and down, through and through, be kind to your body. It takes care of you. I think that speaks yeah. right to the self-acceptance and it's not about it how our bodies look. It's what they do for us. My favorite is I. I mean, I, I'm not trying to put you on the spot like Alexis not at all. just did, so I'll read it. But I is for, <laughs> <laughs> is for inside. <laughs> oh, good. No, you do it. You do it. <laughs> I is for inside where beauty resides. You are more than a body. Your spirit's your guide. And it's okay to put oh, me on the spot. I love I'm that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's my favorite. And it doesn't. And I also love the rainbow picture on the two pages with Me that too, one. Yeah, but yeah. when I was reading, a- I've read this a couple of times to my kids. And that's mm-hmm. just always the one, the letter that sort of makes me stop. I just really like that one. Oh, thank you. Who are picture books for? I think that might be a little too broad. I think it depends on the picture book. But mm-hmm. in this case, I mm-hmm. absolutely wrote it both for the youngest readers who are really listeners before they're able to read themselves, as well as the adult reading out loud. I think we could all use these reminders, particularly those of us who grew up steeped in diet culture. It applies to children, absolutely, but I actually wrote a couple of them with adult readers in mind. My personal favorite for adults is C is for change. That's what bodies do. Years change your appearance, Mm -hmm. but you'll always be you because we all know that aging is... Mm -hmm not always easy (laughs) and in it with the messages that we get from the outside seeing those changes can be hard but it's part of it that's what that's literally what bodies do from the time we're born to the time we die we're changing so why not embrace it this book came out last summer in 2023 Mm -hmm. how's the feedback been in the response it has been mostly unbelievable hearing from friends hearing from strangers that it's the book that someone's child goes for over and over. Because we all know that when a kid likes a book, they they just want to hear it again and again. Hearing that Mm -hmm. is just the most fulfilling thing I could imagine. Because, you know, as parents and as caregivers, our voice becomes the little voice in our kids' heads. So if any of these Mm -hmm. mantras resonate for a child and it's something that they remember and they can go to, that kind of incremental change is going to be why children today grow up without these difficulties that I had and that so many of us had. So hearing about a child's response is certainly the best of the best. I've also loved hearing for adults about how much it's helped heal their inner child and their inner teenager who was, you know, maybe Mm. bullied for the way they look or just Mm -hmm. the self-hatred that a lot of us, you know, go through as far as appearance goes. Very little negative, but I think as an author... I always want to get some negative feedback because I think that that happens when your work is really getting out there. If you're only hearing the good, not enough people have it in their hands. So you're hitting a nerve. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Oh, I've been accused of promoting childhood obesity, you know, that that sort of thing from by saying that all bodies are okay as they are. By not saying that it's bad to be fat and it is good to be thin. That is so ingrained in so many people. It's even ingrained in medicine. You know, doctors Mm. often overlook people who live in larger bodies, overlook their health concerns and tell them to lose weight. And if you dig into that, like I did, it's pretty terrifying. The stories that you hear from people who live in larger bodies and what health issues weren't diagnosed until it was too late. 
So there's going to be those haters out there, but haters mean you're doing your job as a writer. That's right. When I look at this book and I think about the messages in it, and as we talk about affirmations and your mind learns through repetition, will there be Mm -hmm. a coloring book to accompany this? Is there an audio version that the kids can have a sing song to this to really ingrain it? in themselves. I love that idea. And I think we should get on my, on the phone with my editor and get that going. <laughs> I certainly <laughs> hope so is the best answer I can give you. Yeah, it's a great idea. This is something actually, and I just had a vision, like you could even make it that childhood mat that like, go find your letter, go sit down at circle time. You mm-hmm. could create your own your own mat and then get it out into the preschools. And so that when they sit on their yeah. mat, it's their letter. They can learn each letter and they learn the mm-hmm. whole message of body positivity. Yep. Yep. That's something really smart. I thought that our illustrator did is they found a mm-hmm. way to hide. Sometimes it's more obvious than others, but the lowercase letter for each of the big letters somewhere in the page. So on B is for bellies, Mm -hmm. the little lowercase B is kind of nestled in the sand. And when I first read the book to kids at schools, it was a great little Easter egg moment that they created there. I do a lot of author school visits. And the first time that I pointed that out, all of the kids just wanted to find Mm. the lowercase letter. It became kind of a where's Waldo situation. I'm doing this right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so what I found, what what I thought at first was, oh shoot, I shouldn't have pointed that out because now none of them are paying attention to the book. They're just searching for the letter. But funny enough, it turned out to be even a more brilliant move than I realized on the part of the illustrator because I thought that meant Mm -hmm. they were singularly looking at the letter, but they weren't. They were really just taking in the page in um, a deeper way. So I love it. I love that the book can be read in different ways. My favorite is on L. So you've got, you know, the uppercase L, L is for listening. What does your body say? It may need to rest or it may want to play. And there is a young boy resting with a little kitty and he has lowercase L on his sleeve and it looks like a stripe. Mm -hmm. So if you have a child that loves this page and then they see stripes, they could keep thinking like, I should listen. I should listen to what this Mm -hmm. person has to say. Yep. And I, my favorite is uh, on the N is for noses page. The lowercase n is a little girl's okay. barrette. So I thought that was so clever. Yeah, um, I just saw that. That's so cute. You know, something not a lot of people know about picture books is that if the author is not an author illustrator, the book is sold on the manuscript, on the words only, and then the publisher selects mm-hmm. the illustrator, which was the case for this book. So it is mm-hmm. really thrilling as an author to see the book be brought alive visually So it's just the most fun. It's a surprise for me. My next picture book is actually about a cat. So unlike this book that is each page is its own affirmation, its own little poem. I sort of didn't, I didn't care what it was going to look like as long as it would engage the reader, which I think it really does. And for this book about a cat, I'm so excited to see how someone sees the characters in my book. So that part of it's really fun as a total aside. (laughs) That was going to be one of my questions was if there were a lot of um, illustrators brought in and you got to select, but that's a lot of trust that you, well, I mean, you, yeah, I guess you just have to sort of put your hands up and hope that it works out. But I had no idea that's how that worked. Every publisher is a little different. My next picture book is with a smaller press and they actually do want my input when we select the illustrator, which 
is so exciting and brand new for me because I didn't have that on bellies, not that I thought I needed it, but it will be fun to be involved in the visuals and the middle grade equestrian series that I write that was self-published and it got picked up by a major publisher. And I had a, a hand in that too, as far as selecting an illustrator and having a say in how the pictures look. And that's been, as a writer, fulfilling on a whole new level that I really haven't had before. It's wonderful to collaborate as someone who sees the world through words with someone who sees it through pictures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what a great partnership. Mm-hmm. Let's go there. Let's talk about trust. And when you have a vision and when you're given free reign to have that input, and I did hear you say once, take that meeting. So let's go there and talk about that youth series that paved the way for this first picture book. Yeah, yeah. Take the meeting is something I say at every author school visit that I do for older kids and you know middle schoolers, high schoolers. Because if I hadn't taken that meeting, uh, I wouldn't have half the titles that I've written today. And that meeting was only, I'm thinking back five years ago, I had left my job at People Magazine, which is like releasing yourself from the golden handcuffs because there was so much that was wonderful about that job. (laughs) But I did it for a very long time. I felt like I had done everything I wanted to do at People. I wanted to just write books. So I went out on my own started my own business as a freelance writer. And the riding trainer who I was riding with at the time said, oh, you have to meet Piper Clem, the publisher of The Plaid Horse. And I thought, oh yeah, I, you know, I could write, I could write a blog post or two for The Plaid Horse, a little bit on my high horse, if I'm being honest from coming from people. Oh, sure. I'll take the (laughs) meeting to write for a blog. No shade to The Plaid Horse. I'm now the editor of the magazine. But, you know, it felt like I'm going to do this in-person meeting and I'm going to take these hours out of my day where my kids are in school and I'm working to have a meeting. But I said yes, because you never know what's going to come from the meeting. And as it turned out, Piper wanted a co-author to put together a series for young readers, a novel series about life growing up at the barn and riding and competing together, kind of like a Saddle Club 2.0. So not at all what I thought was going to come out of the meeting. I think I probably said in the meeting, can I also write a blog post for the plaid horse? And she said, sure, but I'm really looking for this co-author. Um, <laughs> so, so I'm just very, very happy that I took the meeting and talk about trust yeah. and a leap of faith. I mean, Piper had more faith in me, I think, than anyone had previously. And I didn't really know what to do with that. She was very hands-off in letting me kind of create an idea, concept, characters. And for research, I went to Pony Finals in Kentucky. I think this was 2018, 2017. And I was going to show her the first few chapters there. And I mean talk about anxiety. Like we're sitting there watching the ponies go around and I know she has the sample chapters with her and she's under this big VIP tent somewhere that I am as well. And I know she's reading it and I don't know what she's thinking. And I'm watching the ponies and I'm just like, oh my God, what if she hates it? And it turns out not only did she not hate it, she really loved it. And so we sort of mapped out and put together the rest of that book together. And we did the first three And then we did number four and number five. And fast forward to earlier this year, my agent really believed in the project as well. We'd sold so many copies just as a grassroots effort that my agent was able to sell books one through five. Going show to show in person, having children come up to your booth and purchasing. Right. Absolutely. Yep. That's a big deal. It was a lot. 
I am such an introvert. I'm more on the shy side. I was not used to doing this kind of thing. I love it a lot more now that I'm more comfortable with it. It's amazing Mm -hmm. to meet a child who's read your work and has input and Mm -hmm. has ideas for the next books. So Anders McMeal next year (laughs) will republish books one through five. And this winter I'll be writing books six and seven. So for all of our sweet fans who've been asking and asking about book six, it's been on the delay because publishing takes, publishing is is a slow moving business, but we're getting there with the new books. So to clarify the self-publishing, you then sold to a bigger publisher. Exactly. And they're re-releasing the books and then you're going to continue writing for the publisher. The Plaid Horse was the publisher for the first several years of the series. And now Andrews McMeal is the publisher and they will republish. Mm -hmm. We've gone through, there's about 40 illustrations in each of the old books, which is wonderful to see it come to life that way. And then six and seven will be new through Andrews McMeal. Take the meeting. Take the meeting. You never know. I'm a big People Magazine fan. Is it okay if I ask you some questions about working there? Oh, of course. Yeah. Well, first of all, my first question is this. Obviously, the magazine covers more than just celebrities. It covers people. Mm -hmm. But with body image being a topic of obviously this book, were there situations or stories you had to write or maybe just the whole having, you know, being inundated with pictures of the red carpet and celebrities and all that? Did that affect Mm -hmm. your views on body image or did that keep it kind of top of mind? Absolutely. I think working for people only reinforced and strengthened my ideas in my 20s that my weight and my appearance was connected to my worth. No fault of people in general. I mean, that was the celebrity admiration culture that we were in, I think, as a society back then. I mean, I started at People in 2002. The landscape was very different back then. You know, we had a best and worst dressed issue in 2002 that evolved into best Mm -hmm. dressed you know, it, oh, wow. the industry has changed. Do they changed. still do that? Worst dressed? Only best. Only best dressed. It's only highlighting it's what good. we love now. Yeah. As opposed to this looks terrible. I mean, that change, that change came mm-hmm. quite a long time ago. But I do think being steeped in that world, I mean, I was in meetings every day looking at the photos from the paparazzi the day before and choosing what would go in the magazine And to be honest, I remember even in my 20s, even all that time ago, the way people in the room would react when a photo of a celebrity not looking their best came up on the screen bothered me even then. And these are the things that when you're, you know, in your 40s, -hmm. you think of that you maybe just didn't have the strength to do back then. But looking back, I just, I wish there were times that I had spoken up. Like, what are we doing? Why are we (laughs) picking apart the way this person looks? That's not what's important. That's not what matters. So I think it's something I always knew, but everything, all the external was pointing to the opposite, you know, that it, that it was important. So it became important to me. I'm proud of how people has evolved. I don't think it's what it used to be. Mm Mm-hmm. But looking back, I think that the half their size issue did a whole lot more harm than good. I think it glorified extreme yeah. weight loss, much like certain TV shows of the time. So it was very interesting to be there across that whole evolution. I'm so thankful for my years at People. It really was an incredible training ground as a writer, and I'm happy it's evolved the way it did. I think celebrity culture in general has a ways to go, but we're getting there. 
I was thinking when I was looking at the years that you worked at People. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe when you started, that was probably shortly thereafter. That's when like TMZ starts and Perez Hilton mm-hmm. launches his blog. Exactly. And it yeah. really, if I remember, I remember seeing how there was a shift from just like pictures of celebrities mm-hmm. to like kind of gross, like they were trying to find the most unflattering pictures. They were trying to catch pictures of celebrities getting out of their cars with no underwear. They were, you know, they were writing like Perez Hilton would write mean things on women's faces and Mm meant, you know, it was really a gross time for media. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that wasn't people specifically. In fact, I remember in the infancy of people.com, no. there were certain sites like that that we were just not to use, not to link to. But it really is a, the bigger picture of the culture and that that was, they were fair game. You know, I've listened to the Audible mm-hmm. memoirs of, you know, of Britney Spears, of Paris Hilton. And to hear them tell it mm-hmm. about living through that time, I can't help but look back and be like, wow, I was part of that machine, you know, and that's pretty terrible, but they have their stories to tell now. I mean, we all do. All we can do is is do better now with what we know. Well, I'd like mm-hmm. to suggest that you were a witness to the machine because your time at People, you had um, stories you would write, extraordinary stories of ordinary people, mm-hmm. right? Like, And then you went on to Ghostwrite and you've had a lot of good come out of your time and your connections from people. Can you share Absolutely. what your favorite story that you wrote? It's really hard to narrow it down to one. Can I tell you a favorite celebrity story and a favorite non-celebrity story? Absolutely. So my favorite story that didn't involve celebrities was, I believe it was called The Heart Project. And it was this organization that called out older children in the foster care system and highlighted them with these beautiful photos and stories. Because as a child gets older and older in the adoption and the foster system, it's less and less likely that they will get adopted. So this group Mm -hmm. highlighted kids from, I'd say 10 through 17, because they age out at 18. Just about how beautiful these children were on the inside and, and what they what they were bringing to the world and how much it would mean to them to have a family of their own. Because for these kids, the clock was ticking, you know, by the time they turn 18, that's it. They're not, there is no chance of getting adopted. So stories like that, that felt like a part of people where, you know, by bringing this to life, we're doing some good in the world. And those kids got adopted from this, you know, beautiful photo spread with stories about who they were and how much they wanted to be adopted and how unlikely that was being that they weren't babies or small children. So that one was incredibly meaningful. More like that, but so that I don't take all day for you, I'll move on to my favorite celebrity story. And this was really just for personal reasons that it was my favorite. I grew up with Full House. Full House was my comfort food throughout Mm -hmm. working at people as a 20-something trying to make a career it was my comfort food up late nursing babies. I was on hospital bed rest with my second child and I would watch it then when I needed to just, you know, tune out and have the comfort food TV. So when they announced that there was going to be a spin-off of that show, I made it my mission to not only get that in People magazine, but to be part of it myself. So I was in Los Angeles on a different story and I met with reps from Warner Brothers and Netflix to pitch them 
on a big people cover and somehow it worked. And I got to go to the set. I was the only reporter there for the first, for the taping of the spinoff. And I have to tell you those, the actors on that show are some of the kindest, most down to earth celebrities I met in my career. And I met hundreds Mm. of celebrities. Bob Saget was an absolute gem. I'm so sad for his family and friends at his untimely passing. He was incredible. I went on to write a book with Andrea Barber, who played Kimmy Gibbler, Mm. all about her struggles with mental health, what it was like playing a character who was weird, you know, who was the oddball, and what she's heard Mm -hmm. from fans about how much that meant to them growing up. Obviously, meeting John Stamos is a thrill. I mean, he's kind of easy on oh. the eyes. <laughs> and, yes. And really and kind. And perfectly. Mm. Oh, I think it, he gets better just, with age. It's not It's not fair. He gave me a, a tour of the set, even though he'd been working for 14 hours that day. Um, I actually mm-hmm. went to my hotel room after watching the taping of that episode and just thought to myself, that's it. I'm, I've done everything I could possibly do. <laughs> People Magazine. I'm ready to move on. And about a year later, I did. That's great. You know, coming full circle, I vividly remember that Full House episode where DJ is trying to lose weight and Mm. she's on the bike and she's trying to lose all this weight in like two days. And I remember as a teenager watching that and thinking, oh, like as I'm watching it, thinking, oh, that's a good idea. You know, I wonder if it works, which shows how messed up you know, my brain was about body image. But that's such a great point. Yeah. They handled so many topics mm-hmm. very, very well. Like as mm-hmm. Stephanie's meeting friends that are, you know, with the makeout parties and the, I mean, it just was a very mm-hmm. good show. And probably makeout like the parties. Yeah. It sounds silly, but like it was so <laughs> relevant at the time that you, I really yep. feel like it taught me a lot of lessons. It really Absolutely. It did a good job with that. That's such a great point about that episode yeah. in particular, because I remember thinking the same thing, like, oh, I got to try that, which was obviously not the intent of the episode, but watching it with my girls, yeah, right. Right. yeah, but watching it with my girls now to hear them react to it and say, oh, that's not good for your body. You have to fuel your body so mm-hmm. that you can, you know, work out and feel good and this and that, like, you know, not prompted by me, they reacted to it polar opposite of the way we did. So, you know that's like the fuller house, you know, the full house bench post, right? That things are changing and that good things are Mm -hmm. happening for my kids. So I love that they had a completely polar opposite reaction than I did to that episode. I'm sure that must've made you feel so good and reassured because yeah, it is. Yeah. It's it. I do think, I hate to say this and I'm not saying this is like a blanket statement, but I do feel like a lot of people are just like the generate, the next generation, it seems smarter than at least we were when it comes to that stuff. Like my kids even, I mean, my oldest is only six, but he'll watch something that, and just be like, well, that he would, if he saw that episode, he'd be like, well, that's stupid. Why would she do that? That's silly, you know, where, so I hope that means we're moving in the right direction for sure. I know me too. One thing I wanted to ask you about your time at people, you are a fact checker. Mm, Yeah. How does one check facts? Well, this was 2002, so differently, I think, than maybe we would now. (laughs) Um, But I thought that was such a great training ground as a journalist, too. I would go through the story and check name spellings. And, you know, back then it wasn't just Googling and seeing, oh, if I spell like Dwayne Wade, for example, his name is spelled D 
DWY, I believe, instead of DWA. So, you know, now it's like you Google it the right way and you Google it the wrong way and you're like, all right, so it's 31 million results versus 200,000. Clearly that's it. There were other ways to do it back in 2002. I wish I could remember, but if we had certain resources that we would call a red check, so like with a name spelling, an unusual name, you had to have two red checks to make sure it was correct. I would calculate someone's age based on the issue date. So if an issue is coming out next week and it's just the December 20th issue, you know, it would be, all right, they were born on December 21st, 1949. How old are they? You know, I actually have a funny story. I was so, you know, deep into my fact checking, I remember going to a mentor or going to the writer actually of this story and saying that I had found an error describing a romance between two like old school movie stars. And it was described in the story as a May to December romance, which is apparently like a saying for a a certain type of romance. I didn't know that at the time. Clearly, I don't even know because I can't remember what it means. It's either a a short-lived romance or a romance between two people with a larger age gap. In any case, I was very literal about it. And I said, actually, they met in November of 1971, (laughs) and they didn't break up until March of 1978. And I remember the writer taking great pains not to laugh at me and explaining what a made a December romance really was. But it was looking for anything that was black and white factual and checking Mm -hmm. it against reliable sources and making changes as needed. If there was anything legal, making sure we said allegedly, checking court records. I mean, it it could get very intense depending on the subject of the story. Oh, all right. Let's get back to body positivity. <laughs> <laughs> Two things I want to touch on. I want to touch on, and then you can, you tell me which one you want to lead with. Sure. I want to touch on body positivity in the equestrian world, because I know mm-hmm. you are a very accomplished equestrian, and that is a hot topic mm-hmm. in that world. And then I also want to go to ghostwriting. And how does it feel? to put your work out there and to collaborate with someone without having your name on it? Sure. I'll start with ghostwriting. I'll start by saying that each project is different. I do have my name on some ghostwritten projects and not on others. It depends on Mm -hmm. the author or authors and how much they want that to be known. Outside of my first ghostwritten book, which I really wanted my name on and I got my name on and it was you know, a a thrill to see your name on a book in a bookstore, in a bookstore. Outside of that, I actually really haven't cared. To me, collaborating on a book and helping bring someone's vision to life, it's not my book. It's my work Mm -hmm. and it's my editing, Mm -hmm. collaborating, you know, whatever term you want to use there. But the thrill of seeing your name on the cover or on the title page, I think pales in comparison to the satisfaction of bringing someone's vision to life. So it really, it doesn't bother me. I have a book coming out in early 2025 that I will be on the title page. And in this case, I'm really, really happy that I'm there because I'm so proud of this. The authors are ADHD content creators. They're both adults with ADHD themselves. And the book is all about how to manage ADHD as an adult. The working title is You Are Not a F Up, the Adult ADHD Survival Guide. And it's all about their lived experience. And the format of the book is basically 
the questions that they get all the time from their audience. Everything from how do I keep my house clean to why do I keep interrupting people? Why is it so hard for me to make eye contact? Ever since the pandemic, the rate of diagnosis of ADHD in adults has exploded because the pandemic messed up everybody's systems. And so a lot of adults have lived with ADHD their whole lives. It's not something you develop as an adult, but they didn't realize it until the way we structured our days changed so dramatically. So I think this book is going to help so many people and I'm so proud to be a part of it. So in this case, I'm happy and proud to have my name on the title page. If for some reason that didn't happen in the negotiations and in my contract, it certainly wouldn't have been the end of the world. But it's absolutely nice to be to have your name on a piece of work that you're proud of. Moving forward, is that part of your new contracts? I don't think so. You know, I was actually really interested in a question we'll get to later from the two of you about what we say no to. And I'm in a time yeah. in my career where if I am not really interested in the project itself, if I don't want to read it myself, if I don't want to recommend it to people, I'm not going to work on it. So my contract in quotes, yeah. it's much more about what what the book is and who it's for and what it's going to do in the world. So whether my name is on it or not still doesn't really matter, but it, it sure is nice when it's something that you think is going to make a difference. Lauren, would you be able to contribute to work like that, that you didn't have your name on it? Because I personally think I would have a hard time with that. <laughs> I think I would have a hard time with it as well. But yeah. I do agree. I think there would be certain topics or projects where the importance of it, if you really believed in it or it hit home or, you know, like the ADHD. But I mean, that's that first of all, I want to read it. That sounds incredible. But I think it would be a case by case basis. But in general, I don't think I would be good at that. Especially if I was the initiator of the idea. Well, that, so that's the thing. You're usually not the initiator of the idea. It's someone else's idea. It's someone else's book. But to your point, you just made me think of this. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I would be so okay with it if I didn't write books myself. You know, my name is on my books that were my ideas, you know, my babies, if you will. Yeah. So it's okay yeah. that a book that I brought to life with someone else doesn't feature my name. Andrea Barber's book doesn't feature my name. I'm in her acknowledgments, you know, within, within the business and among savvy readers, when you read what Andrea wrote about me, I mean, she, I think she calls me her ghostwriter collaborator, she, you know, whatever term, but the fact that my name is not on her book cover or her title yeah. page, it doesn't matter to me at all. And you know, it, <laughs> it's surprising. Like but she it, thanked you publicly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I think that it's, it's like being an architect a little bit or being a wizard, you know, to bring something out of somebody's mind and onto the page. And I don't need that credit. I certainly would never be happy with any of my own books, not featuring my name, but with someone else's spark, it's okay. Can you describe the ghostwriting process for anybody listening that has a book in them? Yeah. Um, it, varies so greatly. I've never had two projects that are that are similar in collaboration style. Some people want mm -hmm. to tell you their story verbally out loud and you record mm -hmm. it and then you show them writing on the page. Other people like Andrea, we keep going back to her, but she considered herself a writer, not an author. So what we would do together is she called them word dumps. We would have a particular 
topic and she would just dump all the words on the page from her brain onto the page. And I would help her with the narrative arc or this goes in this chapter and this goes in that chapter. With the ADHD content creators, we met three times a week for several months. And then I would get those conversations transcribed, send them the chapter. They would go over the chapter in Google Docs. So it entirely depends on the person wanting to write a book, how they want to collaborate. I heard you talk about a story where someone very famous shared their story with you and you put it on the page. And I happened to adore him and I watched him on TV. Is this Christian Siriano? Are you allowed to say? Are you talking about Christian yes. Siriano? Absolutely. Oh. Absolutely. He yes. was, that was my first book. He's so fun. He is the best. He designed my dress for my wedding rehearsal. Amazing. Which, my God, I can't wait for one of my girls to wear one of that, <gasps> to wear that dress. Um, that That's was a very, it was a special bonus um, from that time together. But he, um, you talk about take the meeting. This was an example of, of uh-huh. push through and write the story. I was homesick with the flu and had been assigned a feature on Christian Siriano for People Magazine. This was before the book thing came up. And I was so sick, but it was sort of a next step feature for me in the magazine. All of those stories were pretty short form. And this one, I believe, was a three-pager instead of a two-pager. So for where I was in my career, that was the next step. And so I was sick, but I did it anyway. I did it from home. Very hard to do with uh, internet connectivity back in the early 2000s. But I pushed it through. My editor did her thing. We put the story out. Everybody's happy. And then I got an email from the editor of his book saying that they read the feature and that was just the tone they wanted for his book. And would I be available to go straight? And I think I stood up in my little Mm -hmm. office at People Magazine and ran in a circle. And then I went down the hall to a friend who was a ghostwriter. (laughs) And I said, I really want to do this, but I have no idea how to do this. Can I do this? Can you help me do this? He was very generous in helping me with it. And then the first time I sat down with Christian to get started on the book, he was so cute. He said, so how does this work? Am I going to talk, 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 and you're going to type, type, type? And I said, yeah, I think so. (laughs) We'll figure it out together. But we did. And that was the first collaboration I ever did. And my name was on that cover, which was such a thrill. And Tim Gunn wrote the, I wrote the foreword with Tim Gunn. So that was, that project was just such a treat. Oh, I love him. Me too. Such a treat all around. And it, it opened the door for me for this whole other part of my career that I didn't see coming. It sounds like you're just a very, a very good collaborator. Mm-hmm. What are some characteristics that you think one needs to be a good collaborator? Because I keep thinking since Alexis, since you asked if I would be cool with ghostwriting and, you know, for example, I'll have someone on my team create a graphic for me where I've literally given them all of the words. I've sent them like Pinterest examples, colors, everything. Like I've literally done everything for them except create the actual graphic. And then when they're done, you know, they're sort of taking credit or will be out and they're like, look at this great thing I made. And in my head, I'm like, yeah, but I did everything except build it, which I could have done. I just need Mm. you to do. And it does. It irks me. I'm not going to lie. So, so clearly that's not, you know, like ghostwriting would not be for me. So how are you such a good collaborator? (laughs) Well, it's an interesting how you describe that, because I think it really has a lot to do with the transparency of the role you're taking on. You know, in that scenario you just described, Mm -hmm. I can completely see being frustrated 
by that, you know, wanting my name on it because I did all the work, you know, but going into something like ghostwriting Mm -hmm. or collaborating with someone who wants to be an author, you know, it's all very clearly defined. My job is not to take credit for the building. My job is to bring the book out of someone and to take these raw words on the page and make them sing. That's my job, but it's their words. You know, they were never my words. So that's the way I see it. You know, like I said before, I see storytelling through words. So if they aren't my words, I don't need that sort of credit. And on the more directly to your question about what makes a good collaborator, I mean, I guess that is part of it, right? Is clearly defining the different roles. I also think it's about reading people and figuring out what they need and what they want, which is why every collaboration looks so different. If someone considers themselves a writer, you let them write. And then you take those words on the page and you work on the narrative, you work on the structure. If someone really believes in their content, but maybe they don't see themselves as such a writer, then it's about the interview. And that's something I learned about interviewing people is it's really not necessarily about the question that you came to ask. It's about the follow-ups. It's about the listening. So... Mm-hmm. You know, I ask you mm-hmm. a question about something and you are answering it. You really have to train yourself as you learn to do this. I'm not thinking about the next question I want to ask you. I'm thinking about your answer. And I'm just trying to be a curious listener. And when you answer a question, I'm going to have a follow-up question, most likely. And I think that that's what produces the best quotes in a people story and the best guts of you know, a longer story. It's in the follow-ups. It's in listening to someone and then just being open and curious to ask the next question. It really sounds like what you're describing is that for this to work effectively, you have to take yourself out of the equation. Like the story has to be the most important. It can't be about Mm -hmm. your ego. It can't be about Mm -hmm. anything else. It has to be the interview has to be the most important. It can't be what's going on in your head or anything else. You just, it has to be about the story. Mm Mm-hmm. Along yeah. those lines, I have not listened to all of Britney Spears' audiobook. I mm-hmm. haven't read it, but I did get the audiobook. But, yeah. and I could be wrong, but my assumption would be that she didn't write it in the traditional sense. It, like, is probably what you described, where she met with someone who ghost wrote it. So, how do you get people to understand that that doesn't take away from anything? I know a lot of my friends have said, you know, well, she clearly didn't write this, you know, but it's, like you said, like the story's the most important. So how do you get people to understand that that's, it's not about her physically writing it on a typewriter, on a keyboard. It's about the story. Yeah. I think stories come out in so many different ways about this book in particular. There was a New York times article about it and there were three ghostwriters that worked on it in various, there were okay in various stages. Yes. I mean, I think generally oh, for celebrities, I miss that generally celebrities are too busy or, you know, recognize that they're not an author by trade and use that kind of help. But I think to your question, it just comes down to the story, right? A book, if you read a book that you love, you love that storytelling. And so if that takes a team Mm -hmm. versus one person, to me, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. And what would be the flip side for Someone famous or otherwise with a great story to tell, but without the tools to tell it. And they wrote it on their own. They sat down at the proverbial typewriter, the keyboard, what have you, and they wrote it without the right set of tools. 
it wouldn't be as compelling a story. It wouldn't be readable. So if it takes another person with the correct set of tools to get that story told, that's how a story is born. That's how it has airtime. That's how people read it. So our stories are our own. Telling them in a certain format, it takes a toolbox. I couldn't put together a documentary. I couldn't make a movie out of my middle grade series. I would need to go to the person with the tools to do that. Good point. So a follow-up to that, what is your method of writing? Do you need a quiet space? Are you writing on the go? Are you doing voice memos? What does it look like when Rennie is in it? All of it. (laughs) There's no... There's no one way. I feel like I work from home and I live at work because, you know, sometimes if edits are due, Mm -hmm. I have to sit down in my office with my noise canceling earbuds with the air purifier on to make the white noise so I can't hear. Other times I need music to do it for the book, Good Boy Eddie, that's told from the perspective of a school horse. For whatever reason, I played the soundtrack (laughs) to A Star is Born with Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. The whole time I was writing it, I just, I needed that music. And I ended up naming one of my characters Bradley because I think he did such an incredible job with that movie. It's weird. Such a good soundtrack. Right? It's as, for me, it's as the wind Mm -hmm. blows. Every writer's different. But if the wind Mm -hmm. is blowing this way today, I need silence. And I tell my kids, I need you to go upstairs for a half hour, set the timer. I'm going to write for that amount of time in silence. Other times, I mean, Beans for Bellies, I wrote sitting in a chair in my living room while my kids played. Like I I needed that background noise. I have no idea how Mm -hmm. any of this works. I've listened to books on creativity. And there is this idea that a great idea is sort of floating in the ether and it takes an artist to take the idea Mm -hmm. and bring it to life. You know, I think that stuff is so fascinating. And so it's sort of being open to the spirit of creativity when it happens. And it's like a flow state, really, and just doing what you need in that moment to get into the flow. So not to dodge your question, but it doesn't look like any one thing. Depends on the day. No, you answered. Yeah. Yeah. It's all of it. It's all encompassing. When the idea visits you, you grab that, you know, tiger by the tail and you get it down. Exactly right. Yep. It seems like Your road to becoming an author has been paved with generous mentors. Would you say that is correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think my first mentor was my dad. I tell this story in a Mm. book that was going to be a memoir and I'm turning it into fiction, but I was only six years old and I would have what I called book words in my head, like just going about my six-year-old day. I would describe things in my mind when I saw them and it felt out of control and it felt like something I couldn't stop. And my dad and I were walking along a canal near where we lived. And I remember gearing up. This is like the birth of my generalized anxiety disorder. But I was gearing up to tell him (laughs) that I had this problem and I was crazy and I had these book words. And he laughed good naturedly and was like, you're a writer. This is great. When you have the book words, you write them down. And it was like, oh, (laughs) <laughs> so this is a good thing. And so I did. So I, I mean, I just wrote all the time as a kid, as a teenager at people. I absolutely had generous mentors and I had mentors in the form of grumpy editors that <laughs> I, you wouldn't call a mentor in the traditional sense. The first time I wrote a big feature for people, the editor called me into his office to go over it. And 
with the self-satisfaction that you can only have in your early twenties, I walked in there fully prepared for him to tell me how amazing it was. I mean, I literally thought that's why he was calling me into his office. And I, I just couldn't wait to soak up all the praise. And instead, instead he went line by line and pointed out what wasn't working and what could be better. And boy, was I mad. You know, I, I was professional and went home and cursed his name and was so sure he was wrong. But there's nothing like sleeping on, you know, a bad experience or a bad day. So I slept on it. You know, and the next day I went back to my notes that, you know, about what he had said and, you know, realized he was right on just about every count. Like, wow, that is a cliche right there. And, you know, this is a place that I should have let the subject of my story say that I didn't need to say it. So that was just one little experience with that editor that changed everything for me. I mean, people was a training ground to make every word in the story count. Because if you're going to tell someone's story, you know, an actor that's of the moment and it's their origin story and it's what's important to them and it's this, that, and the other thing, and you have a thousand words, every word has to make a statement and has to count. So in a funny way, Mm -hmm. becoming a, being a writer for People Magazine was the best training ground for picture books because you have so little text to get across so much. And that's what I love about picture books as a writer. I love to make every word count and every word sing. Before we move on to our end of episode questions, did you want to talk about body positivity in the equestrian world? Being an equestrian is such a big part of your life we really didn't touch upon. Yeah, yeah, no, I'd be happy to. I think that we have seen greater strides and more obvious evolution about body positivity and body acceptance in the equestrian world because, as I wrote for the Plat Horse many years ago, I think that it is unfortunately a sport where there is still a lot of room for body shaming to thrive. Only five plus years ago, everyone, we could very easily talk about the look of a rider in the saddle, which is always Mm -hmm. thin. Unfortunately, it is almost always white. There's a lot of bias in here when we dig into the look of a rider. And the plaid mm-hmm. horse has been a big part of pushing for that change because riders, like people in any other sport, any other passion, come in all different sizes, look all different ways. And unfortunately, it's been this exclusive and privileged and insular world where this kind of bigotry can still thrive. So it's taken a very diligent push to make those changes. And I think it's, we have a long way to go, but it's been great to see how we've adapted that change. I mean, five years ago, the commentary on the McClay finals, which is a prestigious national final for equitation riders who are 18 and under on the live stream of this final, the commentators very openly talked about the look. Oh, she has the look, those long, slim legs. That was okay five years ago. Now we have a commentator Mm. named Ava Stearns, who is an equitation rider herself, who talks very openly about there is no look. It's about effective riding and being empathetic to the horse and being a partnership. So that change has Mm -hmm. been so apparent because we have had so much work to do and we're getting there, albeit. Yeah. And the, the horses also get shamed for the way that they're built. Yeah, that's um actually what, <laughs> that's a big part of my 
standalone horse novel, Good Boy Eddie. It's told from the perspective of a school horse who used to teach lessons, teach people how to ride at a barn that only had school horses. And then he moves to a barn where there are school horses and there are show horses. And there is a very big divide between the two. As Eddie Mm -hmm. describes it, nobody really cares what the school horses look like, but the show horses get body clipped and they get groomed to a shine and they have, you know, special tack and this and that. And I thought that that paralleled young riders and, you know, their journey as they grow up and realizing how much appearances matter to people and, and that sort of thing. But the great thing about horses is they don't judge and they don't body shame and they don't care how you look or who you are. They care about how you make them feel. And so I think horses are an incredible mirror that way. It's about what really matters. Yeah, I've also heard we're going to give this horse these vitamins and not these vitamins. That horse is a sale horse. It doesn't need that. It doesn't mm-hmm. need, you don't need to put all of the costs into that horse's diet because that horse is for sale, but this one is staying. So let's give it the extra, mm-hmm. whatever it is. And I always think, wow, that horse is still for sale. Is that horse's health not even more important? So mm-hmm. it lands in a good home. It's going to have a vet check. And I mean, yeah. it's a nutrition. Yeah. Is a whole thing in every aspect of our lives. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Would you say you have a, a healthy, positive relationship with your body image right now? A lot healthier than it used to be. I don't think you ever fully get rid of stuff that comes with having a body. I don't think anybody does. But like anything mm-hmm. else in life, I think it's how you react to it. It's very easy if you're not feeling good about the way you look to have your focus be from the outside in and what people are seeing and how people think you look. And a really interesting trick that I learned from a body image coach actually is to flip the perspective and go from the inside out. So, I mean, just last summer, I remember being at the pool with my kids and feeling bad about how I looked in a bathing suit. And when you switch the focus from the outside in to the inside out, it was like, Rennie, give it a, give it a break. You're, you know, you're here with your girls who are having the best time on a summer day. Watch them, you know, look around, look at the way, look at what the sunshine is doing to the ripples in the pool and look at this beautiful neighborhood that you live in and, and your friends who were here. So I think shifting the perspective does a lot, but I don't know that I've ever met anybody who, you know, has fully healed from body image issues. I think it's something that we live with and that we do our best with, but shifting your focus to what's important goes a long way. Just um, one little note is because you were saying fad diets, Mm. I'm going to tell a fun story. I once did the cabbage soup diet. Do either of you remember (laughs) this one? Oh yeah. Never did it, but heard all about it. So cabbage, fun fact, gives most people, myself included, gas. Yeah. And didn't think about that at the time or no. And it was high school and you're basically eating like fruit one day and as much of the soup as you want. So I'm thinking I'm going to fast track this diet and I'm just going to skip the fruit and eat a ton of the soup. And it's high school. It's high school, ladies. And um, the cabbage kicks in middle of the day. I'm sitting in class. I let out the biggest fart you've ever heard in your life. It was so humiliating and the quickest way to stop that diet. I mean, never did it again. That'll do it. So humiliating. So humiliating. I thought, nope, they're like no being thin 
amount it's of being wor- thin is worth it's worth humiliation. It, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Mm-hmm. That I'm feeling Good right story. now. Yeah. <laughs> is is that why cabbage soup is not on the menu at your restaurant? Yes. In fact, I try to stay away from cabbage. It we do not have a good relationship. <laughs> it scarred me for life. <laughs> yep. All right. I'll start. You mentioned this question earlier. So what are you no longer available for? Oh, I love this question. How much time do you have? No, I'll, I'll keep it short. I have all say, the time, Rennie. <laughs> I love this question and I will summarize it by saying I am not here for anything that I don't want to do. That certainly doesn't extend mm-hmm. to obligations. It doesn't extend to my kids. I do so much for them that I'd rather not be doing. That's that's part of being a parent. But did you <laughs> see that meme recently with Kim Cattrall saying, I don't even want to spend an hour doing something that I don't want to do? Recently, oh, yeah. my husband yeah, yeah. and I got invited to a party that would really be more of like an obligatory thing. It was very nice to be invited, but frankly, they're just not people that I want to spend time with. And my husband was very hung up Mm -hmm. on it's the holidays and we should be socializing. I do not have time for things I should be doing. These just aren't people I care to spend my free time with, my little precious free time. So I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to get hung up on what's expected. I'm not going to get hung up on the shoulds. I don't have time for what I should be doing Mm -hmm. or saying yes for the sake of saying yes, I would add. I used to say yes to everything as far as work goes and projects go. And then you end up doing things you don't want to do. So a lot of saying Mm -hmm. no these days. Great answer. (laughs) What is a song that if you're in the cereal aisle in the grocery store, you would (laughs) be dancing to as soon as you heard it? Good question. I'm one of those people that like, if we were in the car together and I just have my phone on shuffle, it is every genre. It doesn't make any Mm -hmm. sense. I mean, it would be really hard to name just one. Lately, it's been a lot of classic rock, I would say. As I'm editing this ADHD book, I'm on Mm. a classic rock mix, but I I really couldn't narrow it down more than that. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, love it. What season of life are you in? I am in a season of doing all the things and doing them well. Allow me to explain. There's this thinking that when you're a working mom, a working parent, that you can't be good at all the things. If you're being a good parent, your career is suffering. Mm. If you're hitting it in your career, you're, you're not doing as good of a job as a parent. And I have spent a lot of this year letting that go. There will be an afternoon where I put my kids in front of the TV because I need to finish something up for work. But I am not going to judge myself as a parent by making that choice in that moment. You know, there are jobs that I will skip because I want to spend more time with my kids. Does that mean I'm being bad at my career and being a good parent? No. I am in a season of rejecting that thinking. I can be a good parent, a good mm. writer, a good equestrian, a good all the things and it it balances, you know. You have your focus on A and then the next hour it's B and the next day it's C. So that's the season. No negative self-talk. I'm going to be good at all the things. Love it. Love it. What is the bravest thing you've ever had to say or do? I was on hospital bed rest 
for almost two months with my youngest daughter. And it didn't feel brave at the time. It felt like, well, this is it. The only way I'm going to get this baby to, you know, a viable gestation and and then to give her life is to be stuck in this hospital room. But looking back, I think it was very brave because I had to give up literally everything else in my life to be on hospital bed rest, including being there for my older daughter, which was a struggle. But looking back, this is something I'm writing about right now in the, in the memoir turned novel. I feel like a warrior looking back on that. And I think it was a brave thing to do. Mm. Wonderful. Very brave. Do you have a mantra or a favorite quote? I do. Slow down. I think when you're creative, you get really excited about things and want to jump in with both feet. But when I am moving too fast, more often than not, I have to go back and fix things later. Slow down also applies to just being present, which I am continuing to learn is one of the hardest things you can do as a human. It's so hard to be present. It's so hard mm. not to be, to have your mind be in the past or in the future, but slowing down is the best way to stay in the present and to be present. What are you reading, watching, or listening to aside from your play classic rock playlist? Yeah, I am reading campy thrillers novels for fun because nice. it takes me out of whatever is happening. And I am re-watching things. I read somewhere that that's a hallmark of anxiety is watching the same show or movie over and over. And I was like, that sounds good. Like, <laughs> no shame in that. I just watched the movie Black Swan <laughs> for about the fourth or fifth time. And then I was on Reddit, you know, reading oh, the theories and stuff. I've never seen that. Oh, it's a good one. Oh, Alexis, you would like that. Yeah. It's really I good. I need to see it. Yeah. Yeah. So the comfort, uh, the comfort in rewatching is where I am right now. <sighs> yeah. I forgot about that I movie. Like that. that was a good movie. Mm -hmm. Do you rewatch things, Lauren? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Do you? Oh, since yeah. a child. I, like I was yeah, that kid that would too. go to the video store and rent the same video uh -huh. over and over again. Oh, yeah. Me too. Yeah. My mom still talks about it. Or I'd play the same VHS over and over. There are shows that are like my happy place. Like I've seen every episode of Shit's Creek a hundred times because it just, when I need to, yeah, especially during COVID when you need it, well, you know, yes. need it just yeah. like happiness. Yeah, yeah, very much so. It's interesting. Okay. What is your latest luxury for your soul? I don't have it yet, but I'm very close. And for me, that's horse ownership. I have leased horses for several oh. years. I only rode school horses before that. And I have diligently saved and saved. And I'm finally going to make my lifelong dream of being a horse owner come true early in the new year. So that is the... And we all know horses are a luxury. So that is the luxury for <gasps> my soul. <laughs> That's wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you. What I'm is so this excited. horse's name? So I'm going to go horse shopping with my trainer. So I don't know, I don't know who this horse is yet, okay. but I know he or she is out there. And <sighs> 2024 is the year of the horse oh. for me. <laughs> First of many. So the last question, what does it mean to you to have a well-lived life? I think this goes back to something we talked about before, and that is just bailing completely on the shoulds. It's not about what you should do. A well-lived life is doing what brings you happiness and brings you joy no matter what that looks like. And no matter 
as long as you're not hurting anybody, no matter how much of a contrast there is between what you should be doing and what you are doing and how you live your life. And that, I just think that applies to everything. It applies to whether you choose to have a partner or be single, whether you choose to have children or not, whether you choose to pursue your sport and your passion at 43 years old, autobiographical moment here, all of it. If you're not being true (laughs) to you and what makes you happy, what's the point? So I think it's abandoning the shoulds now and forever. Mm. Love it. Thank you for choosing to spend this time with us today. It's made me so happy. Thank you so much for having me. I loved it. How do you want people to connect with you? Tell the listeners all of the ways privately and publicly, if they have a book in them and they want to collaborate with you, if they want to meet you at a show, a horse show, tell our listeners all of the ways. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. My website is rennydieball.com. I am pretty active on Instagram. I, like many writers, should be better about social media, but I just can't. Ah, should. I should be more active. You just say should. I should, but I'm not. (laughs) I'm not that good on it on on social media. (laughs) I enjoy I enjoy Instagram and sharing the memes that crack me up because I know they'll make my my friends laugh. So I enjoy that and I'll do that. But I'm Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna tweet, I'm not gonna thread, I'm not gonna do the next one that came out that all the authors are doing, even though I should, I'm not. So Instagram, you can find me there. On my website, I am at horse shows up and down the East Coast. And anytime there's a book event for uh, any of the plaid horse titles, I'm usually there as well and have really learned to love connecting with these people at these in-person events. So I would just love to meet any of your listeners. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. any of our conversation resonated with you, feel free to reach out via email at info at luxuriesforyoursoul.com. We would love it if you showed your support for the show with a five-star review or a social media share so more people find these conversations and have the opportunity to hear from our guests. Also, there are several ways to connect with us outside of the podcast. If you are searching for a personal power object, a good luck charm, or a talisman to shield yourself, I've got you covered. If you have a small business or incubating an idea, you can work with me one-on-one for my consulting service. When it comes to design, branding, marketing, and consistency, we all have our blind spots. Yet sometimes we want someone to listen to our ideas or share valuable insights. Contact me if you would benefit from a fresh set of eyes or a brainstorming partner. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button to continue receiving all the luxuries for your soul. 